Welcome to Literaturka Podcast. Literaturka Podcast'a hoş geldiniz. I'm İpek Şahinler and this is a podcast about modern and contemporary Turkish literature and culture. Adım İpek Şahinler ve bu modern ve çağdaş Türkçe edebiyat ve kültür hakkında bir podcast. Today is the 23rd of September 2021, and in this episode, I'm conversing with Matthew Shovenek about the contemporary Turkish writer Boris Bucakçı's novel, Sinek Isırıklarının Müellifi. Matthew recently translated this novel into English, and the University of Texas Press published it under the title, The Mosquito Bite Author. Matthew is a very dear friend and colleague of mine from Austin, Texas, and he's an extremely talented writer and teacher specializing in the literature, digital culture, and ecology of the Middle East. His works have appeared in online and peer-reviewed publications, and he currently has two published book translations. This summer, he published an open resource textbook on exploring digital Arabic culture, and he is currently researching the bioregional heritage of the Euphrates River in the work of Muhammad Mahdi al-Jawahiri. Barish Buchakchu's The Mosquito Bite author that we'll talk about today follows in the great tradition of the Turkish Oblomov by focusing on someone who initially seems to be an undeserving protagonist, much like the titular character in Ivan Goncharov's work. Borrowing from the narcissistic, petty bourgeois male novels before it, it's relicious in the mundane and the self-absorbed. Jamil stares wistfully at jars of jam, yells at soccer matches, and mobs around the apartment until his wife Nazla gets home. He has written a manuscript, yes, but as we wait along with him to hear back from the publisher, we aren't sure whether or not it will end up justifying the attention we have given him. If it's a work of genius, then all of Jimmy's aphorisms and insights will prove to have been profound and poetic. If it is rejected, then we will have spent 150 pages following another one of those failed writer characters we so often get from authors who, quote, don't have the emotional depth needed to write normal characters, unquote, as Jemil himself notes. Got it. <laughs> okay, I'll start with a simple one. How did your translation story begin with Barish Buchakçı's The Mosquito Bite author? So I was uh, super fortunate out of the like clear blue sky, a uh, professor came to visit UT a couple years ago, Firdevs Hoja, and um, she uh, taught a number of courses that seemed very tailored uh, specifically for me. It was, a, it was such a miracle. One of them, she just uh, had a bunch of short stories and a bunch of novels that she brought over um, from Turkey that we were all able to read in a group. And it was a fantastic introduction to all the sorts of contemporary authors that I wouldn't have ever heard of or ever had experience with. And when she introduced um, the Ms. Barish Bachakcha in class, she prefaced it with the, the fact that all of her students had begged her to read it in class and that they really liked and like loved and found it very kind of, uh, kind of like Chuck Palahniuk or kind of like a very pop kind of writer that a lot of people would like. And she, uh, before even had us look at the book, uh, kind of rolled her eyes and she was like, they love reading this guy. Um, 
So it already came prefaced with that sort of attitude towards it, which I like very immediately recognized um, as a totally deserving uh, kind of like feminist disdain towards a certain type of dude writer. And I just knew that getting into it. Um, but then I, as I read the book, I realized that the whole thing was kind of a takedown of that and very ironic. Um, and I thought it was really interesting and really accessible. And compared to a lot of the other stuff that we had read that semester, it just really stuck with me. And unfortunately, uh, I really uh, identified with the protagonist. Um, so I, I kind of felt compelled to write it. And I, I prepared a, um, a translation sample. And then Dina, who works with the um, UT Press for the Middle Eastern uh, literature, she liked it as well. And it was, it was actually a pretty easy process in terms of that. I didn't have to go um, shop it out to a lot of places. It's one of the few opportunities in life where kind of like a geographical narcissism or a, um, what's the word? Uh, nar not narcolepsy, what am I thinking of? When you're, uh, you have family connections and then you get something. What am I thinking of? Nepotism. Nepotism, thank you. Yes, a geographical nepotism works in my favor for the first and only time. So that's kind of the story to that. Okay, uh, meanwhile, this is the book. Let me show the. Do you have the Turkish version, Matthew? I do, yeah. Yes, okay, let me show that as well. Um, this is a living author. This is a contemporary author in parentheses. So he, he retweeted me like 48 hours ago. <laughs> That's the most yeah. interaction that we've had. So the protagonist of this novel is quite multi-layered, let's say. Jemil has a painful and problematic relationship with writing and existence. This is very clear, but what caught my attention personally was rather his relationship with masculinity. What I mean is that he kind of lives outside the boundaries of this very traditional, conventional Turkish masculinity. This is both in material and moral terms. Like, what do I mean by that? For instance, he financially depends on his wife. He's usually at home writing. He doesn't have a stable income. He does not produce capita. On the other hand, he's mostly like a tacit listener in life. To speak, to react, to say no or to rebel are not verbs associated with him necessarily. And so there are no active verbs in his life. And in a way, Jamil is a man inhabiting the realm of like being rather than doing this like that that realm that denotes activity that doing uh, and also he's very fragile uh, anything and everything can throw him into that abyss of melancholy or huzun. Uh, he doesn't have much of a social life except those like weekly soccer games in the neighborhood and stuff so considering all these in mind and maybe with other points or sequences that you want to mention what do you think about his relationship to hegemonic masculinity i wonder so yes, uh, there is a type of machismo associated with Turkish masculinity that's completely toxic. And from my own experience seeing it there, and then um, even other works of literature, it is kind of like world-class uh, toxic machismo that we can associate with a kind of like a typical Turkish masculinity. I remember there's a fantastic movie. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Çoğunluk. It's from 2010, like a great portrait of masculinity or toxic masculinity and how it's intergenerational and those types of things. And so at first blush, Jimmy seems kind of like your progressive new age, like, you know, post-masculine man. Um, 
you know, who I'm sure that even if he was at a, at a bar with friends, he would probably maybe even identify as a feminist. But because he doesn't have any agency, and particularly because he doesn't have any, any um, initiative when it comes to his, his relationship or to his own life, he hasn't moved past to like kind of the final stage, which is actually to take uh, charge and to kind of become an invested partner in, in a domestic relationship. And so his, uh, his feminism is kind of hollow because Nazla, his wife, is still doing all of both the emotional labor and the actual labor as well. And so we see him in the novel and at first it seems admirable. He never, he's never nasty to Nazla. He seems almost kind to different animals. He has a certain um, like gentleness towards his neighbors. He helps out and he does these types of um, favors for them. And he's through his like um, deep attention and observation of the people around him. He seems at the, at the very least to be actively not harmful to others. But he hasn't taken that next step, which is to, he says, cook dinner. He, and he cooks dinner, yeah. So for the vast majority of people out there, you'd say, oh my God, what a good feminist man. He cooks dinner sometimes. Um, but it's through the process of the novel that we kind of see, and especially when, uh, you know, Nazla gets kind of tired of it by the end, which we only kind of see secondhand, we realize that this passivity, it's not enough to no longer be uh, commandeering and violent and, machi and macho, you actually have to have a type of agency and a type of action, a type of decisiveness. It's not enough to just be uh, removed from all of that. Um, and he doesn't seem to be able to, to get to that point because maybe his only model of masculinity is one um, that is kind of you know violent or domineering. So I thought that was interesting. I was talking um, to Nora, my wife, about it. And we were talking about other what types of examples of this ideal uh, feminist masculinity will we have from art and from uh, movies and from literature that we could even kind of base this or wish that Jimmy was aspiring to. Um, and we thought about, uh, Nora, what's his name? Steve from uh, Sex in the City. He's probably one of the best examples that we could think of off the top of our head, but it is kind of interesting that there's almost kind of like a, a kind of a unknown horizon. Like we don't know where to take masculinity from which is able to be simultaneously decisive, have agency, but not in a domineering way. And I, I wanna say also that um, I think we were talking as well about the way that irony works in this book because the male character as portrayed Jamil is very, very recognizable. If you've read as many of these books about uh, petty bourgeois narcissist, big reader guys, there's just like a whole trail of them in Turkish literature. And in order to criticize them, you couldn't then have some sort of heroic masculine figure who's like the ultimate um, admirable feminist. You kind of need to have this ironic look at it almost from the outside to finally have a critique that would be both um, like responsive and aware of these, all of the books that have come before and also to be an effective one. Like if the book, if Jamil was just actually like a really actually good husband and a really actually like truly admirable guy, then it really wouldn't function as a successful critique or as kind of interesting or engaging. And at the same time, you know, the tradition of really wonderful, and at least in Turkish literature, feminist critiques of masculinity um, from most female writers is also um, very critical 
very strident and is also, it also kind of wouldn't work. Maybe if the book, for example, had taken uh, Nasla's perspective at the end, that would have been a totally different type of critique. And maybe the only successful approach to truly criticizing the Turkish Abumov character and this type of masculinity is through irony, which the book does in a way that I don't even really understand because we never leave Jamil's side. We always hew really, really close to him as a character. We, we, I don't think ever once hear Nasla's thoughts or anyone else's thoughts. So just in terms of like narratologically, it's very closely tied to him. And yet the irony is there from page one. So there is this really interesting way in which we're just removed enough for um, to have that sort of um, buffet, buffetic with a B moment to realize just how you know silly and pathetic he is. And I, I was the way that it's sustained that irony is sustained through the novel was really fascinating to me, specifically as a critique of, ma of like masculinity. Yeah, having said masculinity. I think it's meaningful to also touch upon the notion of femininity. I feel like as a reader, femininity is consistently romanticized in this novel in a decisive and strategic way. That's what I believe. How ironic is that? But let's say together with Jamil's monologues about how he sees his wife Nazla as the source of life because he's like often at home waiting for the wife to come and when the wife comes I mean he switches to this different mode because the source of life appears at home or whatever you call it mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts about the portrayal of femininity in this novel both thematically and also lexicon wise the words used to describe mm -hmm. male subjects and that's another way in which the book really echoes the tradition of kind of male gaze novels through Turkish literature. You know, these novels that I read and I was like, oh, my God, he hasn't even talked to her. He sees her on a ferry and now he's completely like head over heels love like, oh, my gosh, this is so annoying. And he sustains that type of of like male gaze to Nazla the entire novel simply because he never once asks her like how she is or asks her for opinion and stuff. He's, he's he remembers like uh, very romantically, you know, their courtship where he would write long letters to her and all those types of things, but there's always letters to her. Um, you know, they go on trips and then he thinks about things that she does that, you know, like the, the beautiful scene where she's picking um, like wild herbs, the things that he admires and loves about her that are like objectively cool, but never involve any kind of dialogue between them. Um, is totally in line with so many of the other novels where the, there's a, the female character is there a lot, but she's always, you know, um, uh, never being able to give her own headspace. As opposed to uh, One Day All Alone by Vedat Turkula, which has long passages of stream of consciousness in which the female uh, love interest does get her own, her own opinion. And it is a, a totally transformatively different um, situation. And I wonder, um, yeah, what it would have been like to see what Nazla's perspective would be, except that we get so much out of it, by the way, the slight things that she says to Jamil and her reactions to things. At the very end of the book, uh, Jamil is like very sad. And like, uh, she says, well, why don't you just read that, that J.D. Salinger story again? Like, that'll make you feel better. And it's so infantilizing. And then that tiny glimpse, we know exactly like how Nazla feels that she just feels like she's just kind of taking care of a man boy. And so I think there's really, really uh, small, but really well-placed allusions to like how Nazla actually feels that kind of see past uh, Jamil's opinion of her. 
and we kind of can see more than he can in terms of that, which I think is a really interesting way to do it, um, if not like completely satisfying and still kind of marginalizing of the female perspective in the novel. Last week when we were having this chat about the book, you had mentioned um, the parallels between some characters created by other Turkish writers. I think you mentioned um, Orhan Pamuk's toxic masculinity style, let's say, and the difference between what we see here in this novel. Another example or parallel between Cemil and Turkish male characters was, as you mentioned, in Oğuz Atay's novel, Tutunamayanlar, The Disconnected, Turgut Özben. I wonder if you see any other mm, similarities between um, mm -hmm. this book and other Turkish novels. Yeah, so I remember reading The Museum of Innocence by Orhan Pamuk a long time ago and loving it and really enjoying it and genuinely finding it romantic uh, and identifying with it. And then having the strange, uh, it occurred several different times, a woman would then read it and go, that movie, that book was terrible. Movie, that book was embarrassing. Like the guy's a, the guy's like an absolute creep. And I'm like, huh? And now in retrospect, you know, the, the, I totally understand it. Even I'm a little bit embarrassed of having enjoyed that book initially so much. And the big difference is that book is absolutely serious. It absolutely takes that as a type of romanticism. And I think Orhan Pamuk has tried at many points to justify the tone of that novel by saying that it is actually part of the long heritage of European novels. Um, and that this type of like uh, contemplative male artistic character, whatever, like he's just, he's just plugging into that, which I think is so funny because uh, Barsh Pachakcha is plugging into the, his own country's heritage. And it's, it's totally ironic because he, he like understands like just how pathetic it is to be um, obsessed with a woman and then to steal her socks and cigarette butts, like just how profoundly creepy and, and weird that is. Yeah, I think that like there's also been there's been so much discourse in America in the last like five years about the whole kind of incel culture, this kind of like involuntary celibate man thing, which I find kind of like even um, getting into my head. And I, I, I use terms all the time from it, even though it's like not the most helpful or like appropriate thing. But this I but it, it also helps you identify kind of just like archetypes of guys or, or people who are just like um, have really un, unhealthy, toxic relationships to idealizing women. To give you just one example, we talked about this as well. There's the idea, if anyone doesn't know, I'm sure most do, of the like um, manic pixie dream girl, which is just a trope from TV about a, a type of woman I, who's idealized by kind of dorky, uh, nerdy guys. Um, and how they're never given any voice to themselves. It's like this trope that we see in kind of like pop culture in America, you can take it and then easily fit it onto um, a much more like kind of highbrow Turkish novel and see the exact same dynamic going on. And because we're now like so used to that type of criticism of gaming culture, of like anime culture in America, it's just like much more easy for us to see. And I was, um, uh, very interested to see how much of that discourse has kind of come back into Turkey. Um, and I think that like you, you were already familiar with the, the manic pixie dream girl kind of trope. And I've seen a lot of um, memes and things kind of buzzing around in Turkey. For one example, there was a guy who is getting 
he was a, it was a TikTok or something where he was like, hey, ladies, like, here are the good feminist books that you need to read. And then he listed a bunch of like Turkish novels and everybody was like, oh, this creep, you know, so like there's a much better understanding now um, of this type of like trope of guy who's the kind of like bookish, very surface level feminist, but is actually completely like um, demeaning, romanticizing, idealizing of women and just kind of like a nerdy, gross creep. And I, and I had said before, like, there's been a lot of really great books, uh, articles about like the, the status now of infinite jest as like the ultimate, like dude, like toxic dude novel. It was just kind of like the bookish, nerdy, subtle misogynist, you know? And I was wondering to what extent like books have become, if there are any books in, in Turkish literature that have kind of taken on that status as like, if some guy at a bar recommends this Turkish novel for you, like, turn the other direction and run. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. <laughs> I noticed lots of cultural references in this novel, like Nabokko, Joyce, Faulkner, jazz, Latin American literature, Turkish poetry, Turgut Uyar, some German philosophers, Firu Feruzat, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, and Turkish folk songs. Lots of stuff going on there. But the thing is that some of these are used aptly and some of these references are used incongruously. So I wonder what you think about this hyper intertextual way of um, I'll continue talking about masculinity because that's what it makes me think of. There's a very popular um, podcast that I was a huge convert of. I'll see if I can talk about it without actually mentioning it. It was a podcast that I got super into a few years ago and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And uh, I was trying to get everyone to listen to it. And yet again, only men liked it. And I couldn't understand why. And uh, I, you know, like Nora listened to it. And one of the things that they gave feedback was like, yeah, it's just obnoxious because they're always using these really obscure cultural references. And I realized that making constant references to things is actually kind of like a very specific, both gendered and like specific subculture group of people who like riffing on that specific type of thing. I have a, a friend, um, we do it all the time when we're in mixed company, just totally obnoxious and embarrassing. We're constantly like making references to movies from the mid and late nineties. It's just a terrible tick that we can't stop doing. Um, but you'll probably find that lots of other people do that. And so reason like number 500 of why I deeply, deeply identified with Jamil was that he just keeps referencing things, most of which I like, I do recognize or understand, but there's like a certain type of se sensibility and like in-grouping that you get from, from referencing those types of things. Um, and it even more painfully and more embarrassingly reminded me of, um, I briefly dated a Turkish woman when I was living there. And I remember I was still learning Turkish and her English wasn't very good. And so there was a little bit of a, like a, a language barrier, obviously, but it wasn't as much, it didn't, that didn't bother me. What bothered me was that she didn't get any of the like cultural references I was making, which is like so embarrassing. Like, why do you need someone that you're dating to understand like an Ace Ventura reference? It's actually better that they don't know because it's really embarrassing that you'd be bringing that up. But it's something that I was just like, I found at the time to be really meaningful and like really problematic that they like didn't have a shared body of just like pop trivia from television and movies. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I don't know what it is specifically. And it, 
it's not a male thing specifically. It's like a male kind of like well-educated, went to college, like funny guy, you know, like trying to be well-meaning a type of thing that I totally recognize. And that is very, um, very international. Like I, I watched, uh, there's a, a, a television show that's kind of like a daily show, spoofy kind of show in Mexico. And they're constantly making cultural references to Mexico and to like American movies that have been translated into Spanish. And I've seen it in some other things like uh, daily show type shows in other countries as well. And it is just a specific type of guy who likes to just riff on cultural references in this way. Um, and so I found that that was, that was one of the parts of the novel that made Jamia like extremely like three-dimensional for me. And how like Nasla at the end being like, oh, read, read your banana fish. Like you like that kind of stuff. Like she, it also shows that access to these cultural touchstones isn't like a, a universal form of cultivation. Like it doesn't make you a good person to know all these references and have read all of these novels. It's just like a, a hobby that some guys like. And I think that's what's kind of like devastating about that for Jamil in the novel. Another reference is made to Max Beckmann, the German painter. I think this is a curious one. That's why I want to share this specific sequence with you all. Mm -hmm. In chapter 44, page 109 in your translation, uh, Jamil, the protagonist, asks his editor whether he had heard of uh, Max Beckmann or not. And explains that he's a German painter who lived between like 1884 and 1950. Uh, from here onwards, I'm going to quote the novel, uh, your translation. Beckmann witnessed the terror of the 20th century firsthand and was able to remain indifferent to it. He said, to live with the intense feelings is the same as creating new artistic forms. It is the foundation of form. Anger, pain, terror, loneliness, fear, constriction, and anxiousness. How can a painting which uses the repulsive color equivalence of these feelings, one that tries to convey these distorted shapes, how can it still be beautiful? Beckman was successful because he knew that by focusing on form, he could be saved from the tyranny of the things he had witnessed. So um, these intense feelings described by Beckman that Jamil mentions are very familiar to the national and emotional climate of Turkey in its path to westernization, modernization, and et cetera, that we still today feel the echoes of. Uh, in accordance with like what Jamil emphasizes, they are, however, formless. Um, they are experienced in a chaotic way, especially in day-to-day -day experiences and interactions. Do you think that it's a coincidence that Boris Buchakchi specifically draws Drobekman in, in a scene where the two characters talk about the, let's say, twinges of modernity in Turkey in this way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never, um, I haven't, I've only been to the bus station in Ankara, but Ankara is one of those cities that I can think of that has one of the most intense emotional reactions in the people who live there and spend time there. And I've heard more people talk about the emotional connection that they have to the place than almost any other, other place. You know, people will say, oh, New York's the greatest city in the world, or they'll say, like, you know, like Mexico City is so alive or things like that. But people don't talk about like how they actually, they themselves feel like being in a city like that. But almost everybody who talks about Ankara talks about how kind of like soul sucking the, the infrastructure is 
there's a whole uh, account called Ankara Bugle. Have you ever seen that? Where it's just pictures of like terrible sidewalks and bridges that don't go anywhere and this kind of like absurdist built environment. And, um, and I think that uh, there's actually uh, in the novel is even set in an even more boring place. It's set in the suburbs of Ankara in this place uh, called the Cite, which is kind of like an apartment block, like a kind of a suburban apartment block. And um, it seems like it would be almost impossible to experience anything but malaise and boredom just living in a cite or living in much less in, or an Ankara much less in a cite. And it seems like there is a little bit of a, uh, so many of the things that Jamil wants to experience more deeply, whether it's a connection to nature or whether it's a connection to other people or whether it's just like, you know, the, the strong emotions of life and, you know, meaning and death and all those types of things seems really, he seems stopped from all of that because he's just living in such like a deeply, deeply boring place. But at the same time, I think it's actually really fascinating how much of the mood of a cite comes across in the book. Like I felt, I, I've been to a lot of those really boring apartment blocks and I could feel it. I could feel exactly what it was like to feel like being there um, as I was reading the novel. And I thought that it was actually a really, a really interesting example of a uh, novel that really picks up and like uses the emotions and the tones of a kind of non-place. And so even though, you know, they're not painted with like the, the really distinct colors of like a, a Beckman painting, they are actually like extremely moody as in they're extremely responsive and reflective of the place that they're writing about, which I thought was really, really cool. And, and something that um, I thought about when we were talking about it. And I think he even like when he goes to Istanbul, he's a little bit overwhelmed by the feelings there and he can't spend too much time there. And he has to get back to a place where people are complaining about uh, pedestrian crossings rather than, you know, the meaning of life or whatever when there is Istanbul. I just want to ask if there is any particular passage that you want to talk about in terms of like modus operandi of translation. This was really hard for me or, or I enjoyed translating this part, like an example that you want to share with us. Yeah, um, and I think this goes back to the geography again. As I was translating, um, I had a really hard time specifically with the term shower tray, which is extremely evocative if you understand kind of generic prefab Turkish architecture but doesn't make any sense for an American audience. So what it is, is it's basically like a, it's usually like a piece of um, what the stuff that they make um, uh, surfboards out of uh, fiberglass or like hard plastic. And it's basically kind of just like a lip that you put on the ground in a corner that, that you can then put up a um, glass panel around. And it basically just makes like a very cheap shower. In some places in America, we do have kind of like this ring of a shower, but usually it's usually like a bathtub shower mix. Um, but they talk about shower tray and without, you know, it'd be like bizarre to have like a, an asterisk or like in Turkey, a shower tray is kind of like a cheap prefab way to have a shower. Um, but there's so much cultural information communicated like in the idea of a shower tray because it reminds me of every shower I've taken in Turkey where like the water leaks on the floor because it's a really cheap way of making a shower, you know? Um, so a lot of these physical objects, they would communicate like a sense of cheapness or they would communicate a sense of kitsch that was um, just kind of like, well, I'm gonna have to just take the loss on this because you can't really communicate those types of things. There's um, in the novel, it's like a, it's a soap bar. 
with a magnet inside of it that you can then like hang on the wall so that it doesn't like leak on the thing, whatever. And it's totally kitsch and it's totally, it's totally cheap, but like, we don't have that. And I had to look it up and I was finding versions on Google of the soap magnet bar where it connects to a fake plastic hand. You ever seen one of those? My grandmother had this. <laughs> so there's all these types of like really cool, like kind of home decor-y type things that are just so um, evocative of specific like socioeconomic groups, specific types of like domestic atmosphere um, that just like don't really, really come across other than kind of people who, who know, um, which I thought was really cool. And I was like, why should it be so hard to translate the word for like a magnet soap, you know, or a shower tray? And those are some of the things that I found were the hardest.